To the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Victoria Bañales, and tonight I have the privilege and honor of speaking to Olga Rosales Salinas. Let me tell you a little bit about Olga. She is a content writer and freelancer who produces poetry, short stories, and essays. Her debut collection of poetry and prose, La Llorona, was published in August of 2021 by Birch Bench Press. Her column, Thriving While Anxious at Jumble and Flow, speaks to a generalized anxiety disorder that has shaped much of her writing and content. She also writes columns and blogs for San Francisco Bay Area Moms and was featured by Los Sotelos podcast for her philanthropy and activism in starting a nonprofit benefiting first-generation and immigrant students, the Rosales Sisters Scholarship. She is passionate about all of her creative endeavors, which include motherhood, mental health, fitness, writing, and wife life. So welcome, Olga Rosales Salinas. Hi, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us on the Hive Poetry Collective. So just to get us started here, tell us a little bit about your writing inspiration, your journey, how did this all get started, and your book, La Llorona. Uh, yeah, so I've, uh, I grew up in Watsonville, California. I um, went to a Mesty and Rolling Hills. I, I was an ESL student throughout and um, I, I began writing poetry because I felt like it was a break in grammar and grammar structure. And now that I've been writing it um, as an adult, I realized that that's really not the case. Like poetry has its own rules. But as a kid, I just understood it as like freedom in writing and, and creative expression. Um, so literally like second grade writing poems. Um, I, I remember writing poems from the high school newspaper. That was fun. At um, I uh, went into adolescence still writing, into um, adult life still writing. In, in uh, 2019, between 2019 and 2011, I had a, a showcase, a monthly showcase featuring poets and musicians called Vetted Word. That was a lot of fun. Um, the book happened because my sisters and I, when we started the scholarship, um, it was just about raising funds. But this year, we actually... Um, put together a lot of events. And I thought about what I could do personally to contribute to the cause besides time or money, which was, I was already giving that. So I decided to put together this collection of poetry that's never been out into the world officially. I wanted to have one collection that I can contribute to the scholarship. And I submitted it to Birch Bench Press and um, they're very encouraging. They helped me along with a lot of the content and um, they published it in August of this year. So I'm super happy with, um, with the way it came out and the cover, I think it's beautiful. 
And also I was able to develop and really process my experience with the folklore. And I think that um, had I not had this experience, I wouldn't uh, recognize it as a unique one. Having this poetry out there that represents these storylines has really helped me process what I experienced as a kid. Um, now it exists. <laughs> La Llorona, I had a couple events um, in Watsonville, Oakland, and San Francisco. And um, there, each of them was unique and fun in their own way. And, and yeah, that's, um, that's how it's here. That's how it's in the world. Thank you for that explanation. That's beautiful. I was so excited to read your book as someone who's also first gen Latinx. I mean, we all <laughs> grew up with La Llorona and El Cucuy. Like you said, yeah. they occupied so much space. It's just something you know. And so to right. read a book about La Llorona and like these figures, these legendary mythical figures. It was a joy. And it's so ironic, right? That it's such a joy because now we're adults, right? Maybe as a kid, it wouldn't be such a joy because there's so much fear associated, right? That's sometimes that's how parents like kind of threaten us sometimes like, you know, behave or, you know, te va a salir el cucuy. (laughs) This woman will literally come and drown you. Or eat you, uh, depending on who your parent, how your parents adapted the story for to make it theirs. But I think it's also really strange that you know, like my Caucasian friends didn't experience that at all, and I'd be like, "How did they discipline you? <laughs> how do you not know this story of La Llorona? I don't. How did any of that work in your world?" So I think it. I think it is unique looking at a bigger scope of culture. Yeah, and. Um... I love how your book, I know we're already diving into your book. I love how your book, um, it's so creative. Um, it's, it's interdisciplinary in so many ways because it's prose and poetry and epistolary it's letters as well. These letters that interrupt in between these poems, which is letters from La Llorona to her beloved, and then the beloved to La Llorona. And tell us about those letters. Yeah, it was. Um, so I had written a short story, La Llorona, in the back of the book uh, years ago. And when I submitted it to Birchman's Press, um, Derek, um, he, he asked me, you know, what would it sound like if these characters had a voice outside of the short story? And then I, you know, I, I sat with it for maybe a couple of weeks before I replied, like, I don't know. <laughs> and then it, what came to me was that um, she has to be dead, right? Uh, she has to be speaking from, from the dark side of the, the dead. And he has to be speaking from a now space and an alive space. And it has to be this tension between I want to live and you have to let me go. And no, you deserve to be haunted by me. And, you know, like, um, why do you get to live and move on? And I had to kill my kids. <laughs> and what would it sound like if you were getting these letters? And then what does it mean to let go of trauma, right? Because this is what the beloved who's now, who's still living is trying to do to let go of a toxic experience. And I think uh, writing those, I just had to pull in from my own experiences dating. And then that was easy. <laughs> 
<laughs> like, what does it look like to let go of something that shouldn't be there, but that you also need and that it feeds a trauma? So. And I love how it does connect to other traumas, right? Like outside of that. I also love how you gave La Llorona a lot of agency and you're rewriting her story. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I know the story because of what my parents told me and they know the story from what their parents told them. But I know that uh, it's an Aztec ancient uh, mythology, right? Like it's not, it's not mine. <laughs> definitely not Watsonville's, you know, it goes back to an indigenous times. And there's also uh, a, the same parallel stories in a, in a lot of different indigenous communities all over the world. And so I really tried to write it as what does she mean to me from my point of view? And so, yeah, I, I, I had some feelings about, about um, making it mine. But when I thought about it, like she is mine, right? She was my experience as a kid. So I love how at the very end of the of the book, you explain why she, well, actually, could you tell our listeners who La Llorona is, just in case they have no clue, we should start there. <laughs> so yeah, La Llorona, um, ancient Mexican folklore, um, indigenous folklore, Aztec times, she is a woman who um, was, who had six children with a man and not the beloved, but the man died, the father of the, of the children died. And she fell in love with, the, with her beloved and he refused to marry her because of all the kids. And she, um, in my version of it is that she experiences postpartum psychosis and she decides that he can't live, which is, was a miscarriage. And so she decides to drown them all. And then basically, uh, blames her beloved, but um, I know that that's the way I rewrote it. But but logistically, she drowns her six children for the beloved. So that's who yeah. she is. And there's a lot of different stories surrounding her, and it changes right. depending on time and space. But she's generally always like around bodies of water. Yes, and she's wailing and crying and mourning. But I I had never heard this interpretation that you gave her. And I was stunned that she could have been suffering from postpartum psychosis versus yeah, I'm just doing yeah. this because I'm, I'm mean and I'm jealous or wicked. And I, I thought that was phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I, I experienced, uh, I experienced a miscarriage between my two boys and I remember feeling a deep depression that I couldn't explain. And I remember thinking like, you know, if I wasn't in my right mind, if I didn't have a stable partner, if I didn't um, have a solid foundation of mental stability, I could see despair going in a, in a, in a really horrible way. And postpartum psychosis is a real syndrome and a psychosis that people experience. And, you know, women are in jail today for, for drowning their kids. And it's, and it's maybe not six of them, but like they, <laughs> they do experience this and it is a thing that happens. And so if La Llorona existed in Aztec indigenous times, I don't think she was a freak and I don't think she, she uh, haunts the towns that she lived in. I think she was a real person with real pain and real trauma, definitely mental illness, but a mother and a human being nonetheless. So um, I don't want to give away the end, but I, 
she she definitely exists in a place where she can have empathy and enthusiasm and like and and sadness for other people and other women and um yeah yeah i don't want to give away the ending either because it's just incredible but (laughs) um and it's interesting that we're talking this way right because it's a collection of poetry but the poems interconnect there is a flow um but it reminded me of toni morrison right? She's got a whole book called Beloved. And that's the first thing that came to mind. And it's, it's based on a true, well, it's fiction, magical realism, but it's based on a real person by the name of Margaret Peggy Garner, who actually um, tried to murder all her children, murdered one, um, did not succeed with the others, because they were going to be taken back into slavery. And so there's all these different reasons for why women might potentially um, murder their kids. And research confirms it, confirms it. You know, the studies that have been done, I, I've read um, book um, articles by like uh, researchers like Van Warmer, who talks about they studied like men who, who, do, who do this versus women. And for women, it, it tends to be diff- completely different reasons. They're not murder suicides, like to, re- to commit revenge and dom- that kind of domestic violence that we see happening more and more. It's actually for different reasons. And, and having this psychosis is one, is one of them. But then with like, with like Peggy Garner, we see there's an act of humanitarian love as a matter of fact, not wanting her kids to suffer in slavery. Right. Uh, Right. And, and it's uh, about your kid being an orphan because you can't, you can't um, be a loving parent. You don't have any financial options. I mean, what I'm saying is that she's like a normal uh, person that loved at one point. So La Llorona. Yeah, La Llorona. Okay, so <laughs> I'm sure we're going to loop back to La Llorona. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, tell us about the scholarship foundation. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, we just got our 501c3 today. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> Open the letter from the feds today and it was pending for six months. So I can, I can't even tell you how excited I am that we can move forward into 2022 fully tax exempt and yay. Yeah. Rosales, immigrants from Zacatecas, Mexico. They immigrated here in the seventies. Um, my father passed in 97 and during his, uh, 21 year, um, anniversary of morning passing of his death, my sisters and I got together and we thought about how to honor his life and thought about his quirks, like his big belly laugh, um, the fact that he refused to speak to us unless we spoke to him in Spanish. And also the fact that he really resented having to send us to Aptos High because of how the district lines were drawn. And, and that in part had to do because he thought we had to, we would lose our culture. And that, you know, and be part of the PTA and he could have a community at Aptos High. And that's, that speaks to the stark difference between Watsonville community and Aptos community. And um, I don't have to explain it to you, you live there. It's, it's, it is a really big difference. Um, and our experience was that we either assimilated into the Aptos community or, um, or we didn't and we tried to leave right away. And, and my sisters and I all left as soon as we turned 18. And in this anniversary dinner, when we were talking about my dad and how to honor him, we thought like, how do we, how do we honor him and his biggest thing, right? His biggest thing was his experience here, uh, us being at Aptos. We thought, well, how about helping the kids 
that are still at Aptos, who are growing up the way we grew up, with immigrant parents, first-gen parents, un undocumented parents, um, how do we get make their road to college easier? One of the biggest struggles that we had was that our parents were struggling getting their green cards renewed all the time, um, getting their, their immigration status solidified, trying to become citizens. We were trying to fill out our FAFSA and trying to get a counselor to pay attention to us at a school as big as Aptos High. And so the first year, 2019, it was just money between us. I think we raised like $800. The next year it was COVID. Um, we raised about 1,100. We didn't really do fundraising. We just sent a few emails. And then 2021, this year we went full out. We figured COVID isn't gonna go away. We did an auction. We had an event, a couple of events online. It was so much fun. We raised a total of $16,000 for the kids at Aptos High who are first-gen immigrant students. I think we helped nine kids total. Um, so to date, we're going about uh, $18,000 that's already been given. Um, because of the book and the book release parties that we had, the three ones that we had, and the November 30th Giving Tuesday campaign that we had, we've raised $4,000 so far from August to December for the class of 2022. And we're gonna keep going now that we're fully a 501c3. <laughs> My big, big dream is to have a program that coaches kids from freshman year through to their senior year so that when it's time to fill out their FAFSA, they already know where they're applying. They already have funds for their submission to submit. They already have their essays written. They already know their GPAs so that none of that stuff is a surprise their senior year of high school, like a lot of it was for me. So that's the goal. That's the big vision. And hopefully someone out there who, um, you know, this story speaks to will will join us. Um, like I said, we we're just starting and uh, we have a lot to learn and we're we're students in this. So we're looking for collaborations and uh, ways to be a part of the bigger Central Coast area. We do want to expand, expand to Watsonville High. That's something that we are aiming to do, so. That's exciting. Um, can you tell our listeners how they can, two things. One, how can, they, how can they purchase your book? Because all proceeds go to the scholarship. Right. And also how can they donate to the scholarship itself? So there are two ways to get the book. The first, the first way is, and the preferred way is olgars.com slash la Llorona or slash shop. Both of those links on my website, olgars.com will get you to the book or to a tote bag or a mug that say Rosala Sister Scholarship on them that are super cute. Um, rsscholarship.com is also a place where you can get the book and also a place where you can donate um, to our scholarship that we especially now that we are officially a 501c3 as of today. Super excited about that. It's rsscholarship.com. There's a donate link there. Um, you can get a, a monthly subscription or you can donate for one time um, or you can donate on behalf of someone else. There are lots of different options on there. Our next event uh, is a Rosala Sister Scholarship Mixer on February 5th of 2022. And this is a perfect event for uh, someone who's curious about what we're doing. Um, if you're someone who has an idea for us or someone who's, you know, you have a business that should definitely be involved in what we're trying to do, please contact us. 
and um, on either of those sites, olgars.com or rsscholarship.com. Um, it's an RS scholarship mixer. So, and also my birthday. Oh, that sounds phenomenal. And we will also put all this information in our show notes. We'll, we'll put links to the scholarship foundation and um, your publisher and any, any other information you have about this mixer that's coming up, which sounds really exciting. And if you're just tuning in, this is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. We are speaking with poet and writer Olga Rosales Salinas. So I think now is a great time to segue to some of your poems. So I know you're going to read a generalized anxiety disorder. Um, no disclaimer. <laughs> But I think the disclaimer is probably in the title. There we go. Generalized anxiety disorder. On free-floating anxiety, on the earthquake of 1989, on the Bay Bridge collapsing on itself, on fire and brimstone, on backsliding on faith, on weeping and gnashing of teeth, on the day of Pentecost, on the day of reckoning, on an unrealistic, exaggerated ability or inability to speak in tongues, or on the fate of the unrighteous ones, on impotent rage, on a narrow escape from disaster, on uttering a prolonged, inarticulate, mournful cry, usually high-pitched or clear-sounding, on, as in grief, suffering, on to wail with pain, on exterior darkness, on never ready for an overactive, autonomic nervous system misfiring, on a system prepared for an imminent death, on a system that is misfiring, on bodily functions, such as on the heart rate, on digestion, on respiratory rate, on the hypothalamus, on the cortisol levels of first generation or immigrant children, on the demon possessed and casting them out, on the DSM criteria of occurring on more days than not for at least six months, on learning that brown paper bags won't work for you, on running to ease the landing but the trail you run on was greener and the earth was healthier on excommunication on your name being written and then unwritten on in the book of life on fear driven discipline on discipleship driven fear juxtaposed with a message of peace of hope of the holy ghost of being full and your cup runneth over onto eyes on fire. I'm being U.S. born, but your parents can be taken away. On la migra, la migra, la migra. Ice is cold blood pressure, body mass, body dysmorphia. On a body depressed, pressed into or out of Pentecostal. Or on overall health, pre and post election cycles. On addiction and self-medicating. On a system that is misfiring. On brief moments in the sun. I'm backsliding on faith, like on skates. I was on skates in 89 at 5 p.m. on a shaking earth at a 7.2 magnitude, drinking salt water because it'll help on three days and nights of darkness and three nights moonless. I'm believing that an inevitable second coming had started. I'm feeling not ready. I'm feeling not right. On Psalm 116, on Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, on Ed to the church at Corinth on nothing free about free-floating anxiety, and that it seems to appear out of nowhere. Wow, thank you for reading that. That is an incredible poem. And there's so much to talk about in this poem, um, not just in terms of the content, but also the form. 
it's it's littered with a lot of long dashes and it and it just goes can you talk a little bit about um the, there's a lot of religious imagery i i mean a lot uh the backsliding on and in faith which gets repeated with a different preposition fire and brimstone the gnashing of teeth the day of pentecost day of reckoning speaking in tongues excommunication holy ghost psalm 116 and there's more yeah um in Watsonville in the early and early 80s through the late 90s there was a Pentecostal church uh, in the center center of town that my family was a part of um the pastor Steve Martinez um was a uh, very, he ended up doing time in prison and the church fell apart. And in that experience, my family was part of that church. In that experience, I learned um, what it means to be condemned to hell, (laughs) Um, what it means to uh, be inherently a sinner. Um, And these aren't new concepts. They aren't, they're definitely not uh, specific to being uh, in a Pentecostal church. I mean, every religious um, the Christian religion-based um, theology has those concepts, but this particular church was really um, uh, damaging to my experience growing up. And when I think about the things that have caused my generalized anxiety disorder, which is a constant anxiety that I live with and manage and have for most of my life, I think about uh, what it means to think that you're a sinner by putting on pants as a female. <laughs> Um, or what it means to um, be out of any gender role um, as a female and, and to think that those things are condemning me to hell. Um, and so this poem really speaks to the idea that generalized anxiety, the way it's described in the DSM um, diagnosis of psychology, is that um, it's, it's anxiety that is constant and that it's not really defined in any specific way it comes to your life, you know, in a, in a bunch of different ways. And for me, it's like, no, I, I grew up in this religious dogma consumed by this religious dogma. And that has really been the basis for a lot of my anxiety throughout my life. And so, yeah, there's a lot in it. There's a lot of stuff about uh, that religious experience, but also my parents and their fear of, the possibility of being deported and what that would mean for us as you know six daughters living in the states without them and been studies about um what that does to immigrant children and i definitely see myself in those studies so i don't know if that answered your question but yeah it definitely does um and if you're just tuning in uh this is the hive poetry collective we are speaking with Olga Rosales Salinas, her book was just published last year called La Llorona, uh, just published this year, August of 2021. Um, And she just read her poem called Generalized Anxiety Disorder. And um, I I was struck by um, not just religious imagery, but uh, some words that jump out at me immediately, right? U.S. born is in all caps. It's the only section, I believe, that's in all capital letters. 
And then you have right beneath it, la migra, la migra, la migra, that repetition. So I, I did feel like that, that alone had a lot to do, just like you mentioned, um, in terms of this generalized anxiety disorder. But what I liked about your poem is that, um, you know, we tend to think of some of these things as uh, just like mental illness, uh, just arising out of like some kind of disorder going on in the brain. Um, and what your poem did for me, at least, is to show that, no, these things are actually societal. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. For example, the earthquake, you start with the earthquake and then ice, for example. Yeah. Um, were you in Watson? You weren't in Watsonville in 89, were you? No. Yeah. It, the half the town burned down. <laughs> I remember um, I was, I was uh, nine and uh, it was the, f- it was the first time I saw FEMA trucks. I haven't seen them since luckily, but they, you know, they put up tents in all the neighborhoods in town. There were lots of people that were homeless after that earthquake. Um, power plant shut down. Jolly Green Giant never came back. Uh, it, it was a really big, I mean, the downtown area, the move, the movie theater where I saw E.T. burn down. Um, it was it was a really big, big deal in my hometown. And um, I know that the Bay Bridge collapsing itself was the bigger story, but had... Um, I'm not sure if it was the epicenter. I think they call it Loma Prieta because it was, that was the epicenter, but Watsonville was definitely very, very impacted. And as a kid, as a nine-year-old, I thought it was going to be the end of the world uh, or I thought it was the end of the world, right? Because of the religious experience that I was also having at the time. Yeah. And it, and it does feel very apocalyptic. Your poem feels apocalyptic for sure. And I love how it loops around. It starts with the earthquake, but of course, earthquake is so metaphorical, right? You, you can really experience an earthquake when you're living in fear of La Migra, for instance. So I just love how you connected all of these things that can create generalized anxiety disorder. Um, we might not even know we're having or experiencing this, but definitely living in fear um, that your parents could be potentially deported. And this will lead in really nicely to your next poem. This is KSQD, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, listening to the Hive Poetry Collective. We're talking to Olga Rosales Salinas. Um, but before we, we move on, could you talk about the form of your poem? I, I'm fascinated by your use of long dashes. It's not just in this poem. It's one of the very first things that I noticed. I love long dashes just in my writing in general. So tell me about your use of long dashes. Yeah. Um, I thought about uh, describing a generalized anxiety disorder. I thought about uh, a panic attack and I I've experienced so many and, and what I, what I experience in it while I'm in it, is that I really need a comma or a period or a breath. And that's the hardest thing to get when you're having a panic attack. It does feel very urgent and very traumatic. And that's how I wrote this poem. And the M dash was only just there so that you could read it. But the way it was originally wrote it, written was thoughts. And it's it's justified text. So it you know goes straight from one end of the page to the other. Um, not like a traditional poem with stanza. And I think I needed to do that because that's how I felt when I was writing it. Just like an urgent panic attack moment. 
And it's very effective because that's what it felt like for me. It's basically one long sentence connected through these long dashes and we don't get to the period until the very, very end. I was also struck by your word of system that pops up twice. And I think that that's, that, that to me was really important when you say a system prepared for imminent death, a system that is misfiring. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. yeah so, so when I was, I went back to school as an adult and finished a psychology degree at Mills college here in Oakland. And, um, when I was there, I was studying psychology, obviously, and, um, mental health. And when, when we got to generalized anxiety disorder, we thought about the brain, like the hypothalamus that, um, organizes emotion and your, your fight or flight. And when you grow up with constant fear, when you, when your parents are constantly talking about, you know, the possibility of them being deported or there's an earthquake or there's religious dogma in your life, you have fight or flight as a, as a general state of being. And so what that means is that your body constantly thinks that it's under threat. And anytime you react to anything, it's, it's imminent death. It's threat. Like your livelihood is threatened. That's when a kid pushes you on the playground when that girl in class won't talk to you, like these things are create imminent death for you. And it's not realistic. Uh, even as a rational adult, you know, it's not realistic, but when you have a generalized anxiety disorder, that's how your body reacts to these emotional states. So um, it's interesting that you picked up on that. Cause I, I, um, when I was in class and heard that, that was, the, that was the probably my aha moment <laughs> in college the entire four years experience I was like, oh yeah, this is why, this is why we have this. This is why I see myself in these pages because, um, fight or flight is my predisposition. Yeah. And I, what I liked also about, about and thank you for that explanation. I definitely agree with that, right? The amygdala starts to flare and we right. have these, yeah. Um, but, but the system, because that's a term that's used a lot when you talk about like, for example, systemic oppression and systemic oppression does lead to a lot of mental stress as yeah. you point out. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a uh, overwhelming stress. It's anxiety inducing stress. It's cancer causing stress. It's uh, stress that if you don't manage, um, you're going to have a really harder time than you would if you, you know, and I, I'm an advocate for therapy all day, every day. And I say it all the time, like um, when you have, when you, if you feel like you are set up for fight or flight, like if you feel like that that's your disposition, then therapy is the way to go, man. Cause it's, it's it helped me so much. Um, it's helping so much to process what's an actual threat and what isn't. And with that acknowledgement, I've been able to like talk myself down if that, if that's a good way of describing it. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, Olga Rosales Salinas reading from her book, La Llorona. So let's move on to your next poem called Deported. Deported. I learned the term deported while biting the meat off of the inside skin of mango fruit. Bare feet on cracked wood, sticky fingers, disheveled French braid. Since then, I've thought a lot about what it means to disband, to do so by government mandate 
to ponder the legality of your existence by brimming mica on the front stoop. Trauma is not far away. I wish it didn't have that color. Forced family separation equals violence, done so casually. The fact is, deported is an action word. So is rupturing, so is caging, so is silence, so is denial, so is deprivation of any kind. The clashing of adult voices raised above laughter among the fruit had no answers, have none still. On the front stoop, one thing stays certain. We're not meant to be apart. We're not meant to know this trauma. We're not meant to cleanse the moment. Severing a family, severing a limb, severing hope from heart. Wow. That's very, um, a very telling poem about it. This is your, I mean, cause I read the book, right? I read Watsonville, California. That's a piece in your book. And so th this is autobiographical, um, right? Does this poem describe the, the actual moment that you remember when you learned about your father's possible deportation? It does. But, um, my dad uh, had several experiences uh, that were along these lines. So maybe it was the first time. Um, the first time I recognized it as something that I should care about, like this is happening. And um, even though you're a kid, you have to know what this means. Kind of conversations from adults. Um, and then also just recognizing that it hasn't gotten any better. <laughs> that there's kids right now in Watsonville and in Oakland and all over who are experiencing this and uh, it's unfair and unjust. And now I sound preachy, but it's in the poem. So. Yeah, that, that was one of my favorite pieces, Watsonville, California. It's a prose piece, which is probably why we're not reading it today, but um, I have to say that piece was, it's just incredible. So I'll, I'll let the readers you know, uh, our listeners hopefully purchase your book and they can read Watsonville, California and find out a little more about that experience. Um, tell, I'm curious about this, you know, it's, it's such a heavy topic, you know, deported, and it's definitely something that with which we can, a lot of us who come from Latinx backgrounds can identify. I think sometimes people forget that we come from mixed status families I myself have been through this with close family, a close family member, uh, and it, it is the most traumatizing event. I cannot tell you how stressed out I was for 10 years of my life. Um, just, you know, pins and needles wondering, like, you know, is this person going to be deported? And so it, hit, it hits home. And I know I'm not the only person. But the, there's, it's, it's so interesting to me, like there's a child, it's a child speaker, and then there's fruit, there's mango and jicama. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, when, when we had to learn about what deported meant, I was just a kid and uh, we were all under 10, all six of us. And, you know, it was childhood and it was playgrounds and braids and sticky fingers and bicycle rides and dirt and lots of church dresses that were always ruined right after right after church right um there was always an undercurrent um because it wasn't just the day you find out about a deportation or the threat of a deportation 
um, and then having to fill out the paperwork and they have one deal that like, or we had one deal that had done it before. And so it was always a conversation at dinner. The paperwork was always laying around. It was always in our life. And so it's not something you can step away, like, you know, go to a doctor's appointment and come home and then that's over until the next doctor's appointment. It was constantly throughout my childhood worrying about, about immigration status and um, what that would mean for my parents future and our livelihood like how are we going to continue working legally in the country if the politics of the time change so yes yeah, trauma it's a constant traumatic experience yeah and i love how you denormalize it right because first you you mentioned right that it's just done so casually and it is right it, it i mean it is but I love how you denormalize it, especially at the end. Well, actually, the the words by association, you you call you call it by its name. That what what is it? It's violence. It's what it is. The fact is, deported is an action word. So is rupturing. So is caging. So is silence. So is denial. So is deprivation of any kind. And then I love the end when you say. You're on the front stoop, right? One thing stays certain. We are not meant to be apart. We are not meant to know this trauma. We are not meant to cleanse the moment. Oh, I just really appreciate that. Calling it what it is, it's an act of violence and it's not normal by any means. Right. And it's not just, it's not just, you know, the, the ICE official who takes the kid from the their mother's arms, right? It's the mother who decides to stay in Mexico and sends the kids away because of the desperation they're also feeling. That is so unfair and unnormal. And violence is violence. And it's um, really disheartening because this, this is a story based in the 80s, right? This, this is my experience from the 80s. It has gotten so much worse. For your listeners, if, if you end up reading the Watsonville story, we could have easily been kids in cages. We could have easily not gotten a pardon from a judge in San Francisco, and we could have easily been put in a camp somewhere in a cage. And thinking about that, just, um, it's so overwhelming. And, and I, and I'm a grown adult. (laughs) So just putting myself in the, in the position of kids now who are experiencing it now, um, who are undocumented now in Watsonville, like, oh my goodness, I, I feel you and I feel for you. And, you know, how do you not try to help in this situation? How do you not do something? Got to do something, right? Absolutely. And the ongoing trauma, right? It's not something you leave behind, like you said, because this is still going on to this day. And I agree with you. I feel like it's getting definitely worse. Um, but let's move on for the sake of time. Um, your next poem, Fabric. This is a little bit off topic. We haven't really talked about this, uh, but no disclaimers. So here it goes. Fabric. You have mended and stitched year after year and not just in therapy. I have known you, not known you, and loved you while hating. I've forgotten the details only to remember the same you and then forget about the sick you immediately after. I've forgotten the details only to remember them at 3 a.m. How I hate 3 a.m. 
when it's just me and just shadows dancing off of windows and a two-year-old that's already learned to snore. In all of the hand-holding and regret, I find you repeatedly wearing my once-worn and worn-out pair of 501s. You remind me that they don't make them like they used to, that the Mint used to donate old dollar bills to those 501s, and that they just stopped one day. One day maybe because stretching truth was more important than denim, more important than the old me, than the new you. I've lied about you, for you, and with you for millennia now, a lexicon of just lies for the old me that faces the sick you, for the old me that misses the saying you about you to benefit the sick you. I've lied to you about you, to the new you, to the sick you, all of the lies necessary, none of them true. Could I have kept you from falling, from failing, from sickness? Could I have threaded the thoughts used to hold old denim together? Could I have been the mint-making defense against the weaponized synapses in your mind at war with themselves? Would you wear the pair of denim if I guaranteed you it was truth? Would you still wear the pair of denim if I were their creator, the creator himself? I've the foot of you and wondered if I've had just another minute with the old you before you disappeared, if things would be different. I've wondered what to say and who you'd be if I'd said it. Thank you. Olga Rosales Salinas just read her poem called Fabric. This is a poem in which you seem to be speaking to somebody. Could you talk a little bit about that? The story is, uh, or the poem is for my sister, Veronica. She was diagnosed in her late adolescence in, uh, I think she was 21, with schizophrenia after an acid trip. And um, my sisters and I and our whole family have had to come to terms with what that means for an adolescent schizophrenic and now a, an adult schizophrenic, um, what it means to deal with mental illness on this scale. Uh, and it's hard. And it's something that I don't wish on any family. I've definitely learned a lot about the system, <laughs> the mental health system and resources and uh, different resources in different states. Uh, my sister lives in Vegas now simply because there are more resources for mental illness than there are in California. And so, yeah, this poem speaks to that. It speaks to a real desperation uh, that I used to feel when she first got diagnosed, wanting her to be better and to just snap out of it. Um, and then now as an adult, like that's never going to happen. And she's, it's not her, it's not going to be her experience. She will always be schizophrenic. And uh, that's a really hard thing to, to process. And so this is what the poem is about. Oh, wow. Thank you for that explanation. Um, and you have another poem in, in the book, Mosaic Sister. Um, yeah. I, I imagine it's also about Veronica. Yeah. Um, we're the closest uh, out of all six of us, just because we're the older three of the of the younger three. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you come from a big family, but big families usually split by age and the three older sisters and the three younger sisters and Veronica was the eldest of the three younger sisters and her and I are uh, only 11 months apart. So we wore the same clothes. We went to the same schools, uh, only separated by grade because we had to be for the school district. But yeah, my sister, I love her deeply. She teaches me a lot about life, but she's, she's schizophrenic. She's mentally ill. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear this, but I, I 
I do appreciate the the poems that you've written for Veronica and definitely the love that you have for her shines in these poems. Um, you seem to have some regrets and I'm just curious about that where you say, I have knelt at the foot of you and wondered if I had just another minute with the old you before you disappeared, if things would be different. I've wondered what to say and who you'd be if I'd said it. Um, I guess if there's regret in there, it has to do with uh, the religious dogma that I was speaking about earlier. We were both in this church. Well, all of us were in the church, but her and I were really involved. I don't think it helped when she got sick. And so when I think about her and like what we could have done or how we could have prevented a sickness that was probably dormant um, before an acid trip, um, I always think like, what if we hadn't gone to that church or what if we'd left earlier or, you know, there's all the what ifs and, and different choices. And what if I'd made this and done that? And yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to process, but I do it with, with poetry, right? That's what they're for to try to figure out where the regret is. Yeah. And poetry is definitely um, a form of therapy. I, I definitely see it that way. I, one last question. And then I would love to move on to squeeze in a, more, more poetry from you. The jeans, I'm just struck by the jeans. And of course the title is called fabric. Can you talk about these 501s? <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the mint, like the federal government, the mint used to donate old bills for Levi's to, to, to the Levi company. And uh, when everyone wanted to wear stretchy jeans, they stopped giving the money. <laughs> um, that's why those old denim were so stiff because they're made of old money. Um, but I, Veronica and I used to wear each other's clothes. We were the same height, same size, you know, 11 months apart. We had the same friends, like we had the same wardrobe. And um, when I think about my childhood with her, I think about that. I think about sisterhood and what it means to have one closet between the two of you. I, mean, uh, I always thought that the jeans donated the money to make the Levi's, but I have no clue. And I, I just read somewhere that skinny jeans ruined all that because they, they the material's different. I don't know, but it, yeah. it is fascinating. It's, yeah. Why? Thank you. Um, for the sake of time, I want to hear another poem. You're going to read assimilated for us. Yes, assimilated. And this, I think, this speaks to um, uh, the duality between two communities. Um, Baptist and Watsonville, and out of love and peace and light to Vicente Fernandez's family, uh, who must be in mourning. As a community, we're all in mourning, having lost Vicente this week, but. Here it goes, assimilated. Vicente Fernandez talks a lot about returning. Ramon Ayala is most likely a functioning alcoholic. Celia Cruz was not Mexican. Nonetheless, my hips move with the attention she commanded. I don't know why Mana and Oye Mi Amor is a running theme in my bathroom shower. I don't know why the music of my childhood is intertwined with notes from Lilith Fair. I don't know why. Acá entre nos feels like an apology for an affair I've never had. 
I pretended not to understand my father when he refused to speak to me in English. I pretended I didn't speak Spanish for the better part of high school. I mimicked deafness to the notes of mothering that mother knew to sing. Somehow, when the karaoke machine presents itself, I am the designated Mexican folklore thespian singing en el muele de San Blas. Somehow, answering the waiter with appropriate pronunciation at the Mexican restaurant was a point of contention when I was with my white friends. Somehow, becoming more of someone else means becoming less of who I was born to be. Somehow, I encountered Buena Vista Social Club, and I don't know what I would have done without them. How would I code switch when it plays in an elevator full of white people who also recognize this symbol and trombone? How would I bring that band to life as an international phenomenon while also appealing to the senses of the yuppie or the bourgeoisie? I know exactly what the harmonica sounds like. I know exactly what a 10-piece orchestra dressed in matching ribbons, ties, sashes, belts, trousers, and chaps does to my mother and her well of harbored tears. I tried to hold the accordion when I was 12. I don't know how the songs and dances of my family's wants and dreams got lost inside the battle between West and East Coast. I know for certain that I walked away, all while pining to volver, volver, volver. Such a great poem, assimilated. Can you talk a little bit about this poem? Yeah, um, <laughs> well, I, like, I wish I had a more poetic way of saying it, but I had a hard time at Apple's Um I was so different from those kids. My background was so different. And I tried, I tried to be um, less of me, less of myself to fit in. And I, I regret, there's a lot of regret there. Um, but it was also, you know, it was also, my life was filled with music. And Vicente Fernandez, um, he didn't cross cultures, you know. <laughs> uh, if you know who he was, you're, you're most likely Latinx. Yeah, and Ramona Yala, of course. Yeah, right. Tragos Amargo Licor, like who sings that? It's like an ode to alcoholism. Oh, uh, totally. But it was also uh, the theme of my childhood. Yeah. Um, it was also a time, you know, I, I never saw my dad cry unless he was listening to those, those songs. And um, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, what machismo does in our culture. Yeah, I, I do like, though, um, I, I actually really identified with this poem because I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, and I experienced exactly, I mean, exactly what you write here. And but but um, it reminds me of something that Gloria Zaldúa says in her book, where she says that you'll hear like a song such as, for example, Vicente Fernandez or Ramon Ayala. And she's like, and then I just start kind of like grooving to the song, right? It, even though you're feeling these pressures to assimilate, you still, you're, y volver, 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 right? You're still drawn back to your culture and it feels so good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you probably heard it in the crib, you know? <laughs> you probably heard it as a toddler singing, you know, Dragos Amargo Licor. And as a toddler, you didn't even know what it meant, but that's what was playing in your house. And oh, so it's yeah. home, you know, it's totally home. And we find our way back, which we did right at some we point. Did. We did. Yeah. You learned that cultural appreciation. Um, I do appreciate that about Watsonville, that kids that grow up here and go to school here, like my son, they just grow up with a lot of cultural pride. And it makes me sad that I didn't experience that because of where I was going to school and where I was growing up. And it sounds like you were also going through the same thing. 
So yeah, I mean, my friends who went to Aptos or went to Watsonville High definitely didn't have that experience of trying to hide who they were. They were <laughs> that was definitely not them. You know, um, it's just and it's only you know I don't know how the mile difference, but looking back, it was only a few exits away. Um, yeah, from my hometown. So it's just yeah. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. It's just incredible how quickly time goes when you're just having a great time talking about poetry. And, um, but I just want to say thank you to Olga Rosales Salinas, poet extraordinaire. And um, thank you so much. Be sure to like order her book. It is phenomenal. I guarantee you will love it. And we will put those links on our website. So you were listening to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. And if you like what you hear, you can follow us on Facebook, the Hive Poetry on KSQD, or follow us on Twitter at Hive Poetry, or visit our website, hivepoetry.org. Once again, thank you, Olga Rosales Salinas. Thank you so much, Victoria. I've had such a good time today. Thank you so much.